Greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us uh, here at Center Campus, as well as those joining us from our campus in Bearspa, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. I also want to welcome our online viewers as well. Uh, this weekend, we are continuing our sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. Oh, when we speak of the fruit of the Spirit, we're talking about the character qualities of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the one who fully embodied the fruit of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus by producing His character in us. In the last year or so, we've seen a crisis in Christian leadership. Many well-known Christian leaders have fallen into some major area of sin. And in every one of those cases, their leadership influence outpaced their character. There was a gap between who they claimed to be and who they truly were. We have a problem when our character and our credentials don't go together. And this is not just a crisis in Christian leadership, but it is a challenge for all of us who are followers of Christ. North American Christianity in the 21st century has an image problem. A Barna Group survey conducted not long ago revealed the vast majority of 16 to 29-year-olds who are outside of the faith define Christians by what we oppose rather than what we stand for. We are perceived negatively, viewed with suspicion. The way we overcome this negative perception is by allowing our character to speak louder than our words. And that is why the sermon series that we are embarking on, on the fruit of the Spirit, is so critical to the public witness of our church. It addresses the integrity crisis and also calls all of us to grow in spiritual maturity. As we learn to abide in Jesus and He, through His Spirit, produces the fruit in our life, then we will stand out. We will have a positive impact on those we rub shoulders with. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, if we are being led by our sinful nature then we will have a lifestyle that is contrary to God's kingdom. But if we are being led by the Spirit, when we are yielded to the work of the Holy Spirit, then we will have a life that bears resemblance to Jesus. In fact, that is the evidence the Holy Spirit is active in our life. Oftentimes, people associate the Holy Spirit with an emotional experience or a power encounter but the real evidence of the fullness of the Spirit in a person's life is character transformation. When day by day, we are slowly being conformed to the image of Christ. Now, in this sermon series, we are unpacking each of the characteristics of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, keep in mind, it is a singular fruit with nine flavors. And we need to look at these as a unified set of character qualities. We need all of these qualities in order to look more like Jesus. In the last two weeks, we have focused on love and joy. And today we will put the spotlight on peace. 
And at the end of the sermon, we will be transitioning to celebrating the Lord's Supper together. If you're watching this online and want to be part of this experience, uh, please make sure that you have a, a bread or cracker and some juice ready. And if you're here with us and you need communion elements, one of our ushers can help you with it. So let's uh, read the scripture passage and uh, pray together. So I'm going to ask you if you're physically able to stand as we read God's word together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is our heart's desire to look more like Jesus. And we know that this is not something we can manufacture in our own strength, but we are fully dependent on your spirit to do the deep work of character transformation, that these uh, traits, these qualities will become evident in our lives. So, Lord, would you work in a powerful way in bringing conviction and challenge? Pray that, Lord, as we look at the topic of peace, that you will pour out your peace afresh, that your peace will flood our hearts. So we pray that you'll personalize this message wherever we are at, that we will be able to appropriate these truths to our lives. Well, we pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Our English word peace doesn't fully communicate what God's word intends to communicate when referring to this word. A peace, according to the Bible, is the shalom of God. And shalom in Hebrew is not just a positive mental feeling, but it speaks of wholeness or completeness. The emphasis is on total well-being. The New Testament word for peace is irene, from which we get the name Irene, meaning peace. It is used of the security and well-being a nation enjoys when it is under a capable, competent, caring leader. It is the exact opposite of what we are seeing, for instance, in Afghanistan, where a militant regime is trying to take over the ruling of the nation, resulting in absolute chaos and pandemonium. Now, if we have an assurance that God, who is in charge of our life, who rules over us, is good and capable, then we can have that shalom, that sense of wellness within our soul. It flows out of an assurance that is based on God's character. Jesus had peace that flowed from his intimate relationship with the Father. Jesus knew the Father's heart. And that is why as you read the four Gospels, you don't see Jesus flustered, agitated, anxious, weighed down. He knew that his life was in the hands of his Father who is reliable and trustworthy. And as a result, Jesus was full of peace even in the middle of a crisis. 
a large hungry crowd listens to him teach all day, and Jesus and his disciples don't have enough food to feed them. But Jesus doesn't panic, but he trusts in God's provision. Jesus is always surrounded by all kinds of people wanting his attention, and he remains calm in the midst of all of that. You know, the religious leaders try to repeatedly snare Jesus, try to get under his skin, and Jesus never loses his composure. Even in confronting demonic spirits, Jesus is not sweating bullets, nothing seems to upset his peace and tranquility. Now, I'll demonstrate this for you from a familiar text from Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Listen to these words. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. In his book, uh, Jesus and Eyewitnesses, a Bible scholar, Richard Bauckham, examines the characteristics of eyewitness memory. He says one of the marks of an eyewitness account is irrelevant detail. Now, unlike a fictional story that has been carefully composed, an eyewitness account uh, details things because, simply because they remember them. Now, Mark is going to write about a glorious spectacle of Jesus calming the storm and exercising his power over the forces of nature. But he includes small details which don't really contribute to the narrative, but merely confirms the fact that this comes from eyewitnesses. For instance, you can see in our passage, as Jesus starts out on the Sea of Galilee, there were other boats around him. The narrative gives us the position of Jesus in the boat. He was in the stern. And we see not only is Jesus sleeping, he's sleeping on a cushion. Uh, These small details are unnecessary to the story, but confirms that Mark wrote the gospel with the help of eyewitnesses, primarily Peter. Uh, Peter was obviously impacted by this whole incident that he narrates this to Mark. It was so vividly etched in Peter's mind, it left an indelible impression on him. Now, we're going to come back to Peter and the impact of this incident on his life towards the end of this message. But going back to the account that we read from Mark 4, we see it is late in the evening, and Jesus and his disciples were sailing in the Sea of Galilee. They've had a long day of ministry, and they are very tired. And the Sea of Galilee is actually a freshwater lake. 
This lake was about 13 miles long, 150 feet deep, and surrounded by mountains. The geographic location of the Sea of Galilee made, makes it susceptible to sudden, violent storms. And when that happens, waves can rise up to over 10 feet, some even say 20 feet high, the lake would turn treacherous. And that's what happened to Jesus and his disciples late in the evening. Out of nowhere came this furious squall. The wind was blowing fiercely. And Mark is using a descriptive and strong language to refer to the storm. The sea was foaming and the waves arose and soon water started filling the boat. And keep in mind, the disciples of Jesus were expert fishermen. That was their livelihood, and they had faced scenarios like these countless times. They knew the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hand. But these trained fishermen started to fear, for they knew this storm was one of a kind. And as the disciples were caught in this furious hurricane, the wind was blowing hard, and the water started entering into the boat. And they were in grave danger of sinking. It was a life-threatening situation. Now, these fishermen who were expert seafarers were panicking. And what was the carpenter in the boat doing? He was sleeping. Now, who in their right mind will sleep through a storm? Now, last year, we experienced the biggest hailstorm in Canadian history, and our neighborhood was one of those affected. I still remember when the hail came down with such intensity, and the noise was deafening. It was pounding hard, and windows even shattered. It was not a pleasant experience, and when it stopped hailing, every person in the neighborhood came outside to examine all the damage that had happened. It was like we were in a war zone. And guess what? Not a single person slept through that storm. And if they were sleeping, they woke up in panic, petrified. And here in this passage, we read there is an imminent danger of the boat sinking. The wind was howling loud. The disciples were panicking. There's chaos and mayhem as the boat is being tossed around by waves that are 20 feet tall. And Jesus was fast asleep. How could Jesus sleep through such a fierce storm? Jesus could sleep through a storm because of his confidence and faith in his Father in the face of an impending danger. Jesus knew that his Father can be trusted in every situation. He had this deep, unshakable confidence that their boat was not at the mercy of the wind and the waves, but it was in the capable hands of his heavenly Father. And that's what helped Jesus to rest in the middle of a storm. And that's what helps us today when we face unexpected trials in our life. Storms of life have a way of removing our self-sufficiency. It brings us to a place where we realize we are helpless. We cannot do this in our own strength. We need God's intervention. 
And in the middle of the storm, if you can maintain this unwavering conviction that God is in control of your life, then a byproduct of that is this shalom, this wellness within your soul. It's priceless. Now hear the words of Jesus from John chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Last weekend I told you that Jesus wants you to experience the same joy that he has, this divine joy that takes our capacity to experience joy to an altogether new level. It's been expanded and enlarged. The same is true of peace. Jesus says, my peace I give to you. The peace that kept Jesus from being frazzled and frustrated at life's demands is the same peace that he offers us today. See, Jesus is not promising absence of trouble. He's not saying that Christian life is free of storms. He does not guarantee smooth sailing. But he's offering you peace in the midst of the storm. And Jesus says, I don't give you peace as the world gives because the world can never give you lasting peace. The world defines peace as the absence of conflict. But the Christian equates peace with the presence of Jesus. So no matter what your circumstances may be, if you have Jesus in your life, you have an ongoing supply of peace. Jesus says a couple of chapters later in John 16, verse 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There's one thing you can know for sure. In this world you will have hardships. Now, if you think I'll have peace when this problem goes away, and I have news for you. It's just another problem that is lurking at the corner. And life is never going to be perfect this side of eternity. You know, how many times we've said this past year and a half, when this pandemic is over, when all of these things are over, life gets back to normal, finally I can experience a sense of peace. Now, the problem with that is that peace is contingent upon your circumstances. But if we know Jesus and we are walking closely with him, then you don't have to wait for the pandemic to be over, but you can have peace in Jesus right smack dab in the middle of this COVID crisis, in the middle of a, a stormy situation you're going through, a relationship challenge, a financial challenge, a health crisis, whatever it may be. If you have Jesus in your life, you have peace. Amen. And here's the encouragement Jesus gives us. He has overcome the world. 
what that means is that decisive battles have already been won. Oh, yes, we are at war and we are facing attacks from all sides, but we know how this war will end and we are part of the winning side. So we don't have to wait with bated breath to see how everything is going to pan out, but we can trust and the assurance that we already have the victory in Christ. Peace is a result of knowing the heart of God, that His character is reliable and trustworthy. So we have Peter here as an eyewitness when Jesus calmed the storm. And that incident had a deep bearing upon Peter's life. In Mark chapter 4, when Jesus was sleeping through a storm, Peter was in that boat, and he panicked. He rode in desperation with no success. He tried to empty the boat of water, but it kept filling. And I'm sure Peter was one of those guys who approached Jesus and said, Teacher, don't you care if we perish? This desperation in his voice. And Peter that day heard Jesus speak to the storm like he's addressing a misbehaving child. Jesus says, quiet. It's the same word, peace, in some translation. Peace, be still. And lo and behold, the wind and the waves obeyed the voice of the Creator. And this howling storm and strong winds instantly died down. So did the waves and everything was completely calm. And scientifically, even if the winds were to stop, the, the waves will keep pounding for hours afterwards. And what happens here is a miracle. Millions of horsepower of wind force is halted, and millions of gallons of violent water is turned as placid as a lake. That is the inherent power in the words of Jesus, peace be still. And with those words, not only did Jesus still the storm that was raging outside, but he calmed the storm raging inside the desperate disciples. Years later, Peter would face yet another storm. And this time he would be all alone, didn't have the help of his colleagues. In Acts chapter 12, King Herod is ruthlessly attacking the church. James, the brother of John, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, is put to death. And Herod realized that uh, persecuting the Christians pleased the Jewish leaders so he continued on in this rampage and had Peter arrested. We find this in Acts chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, 
he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. So what's going on here? This is the night before Peter's trial. And in all probability, humanly speaking, this was the final night of his life. Just as James had been killed, Peter also faced an imminent death. And being the leader and the spokesperson of the church, he was a prime target. So the night before his execution, what do we see? Peter is sleeping. Chained to the, the Roman guards. And what was going on inside his head? Peter, you're in a storm. Your life is in danger. In a matter of hours, you may be executed, die a brutal death. Shouldn't you be panicking right now? You should be losing your composure. You should be having an anxiety attack, tossing and turning in bed. A picture inmates on death row, and if they knew that the following morning they're going to be executed, would they be able to sleep peacefully through the night? But Peter had learned the lesson of what it means to trust God and sleep through a storm. I'm sure that would have baffled the Roman guards. They can't sleep because they have to keep an eye on the prisoner. And the one who would be executed in a few hours is enjoying a peaceful siesta. This guy was the real deal. And there's a little bit of humor here in the text. Peter was sleeping so deeply that Angel had to, had a hard time waking him up. Like the light cell is, is on in the cell, right? The light is shining, and Peter still is sleeping. And the text says the angel struck him on the side. Oh, Peter is like a kid. You know, kids can sleep so deeply, you shake them, they don't get up. Oh, Peter was enjoying a, a deep, peaceful slumber, and the angel had to whack him on the side to wake him up and saying, hey, I'm trying to help you get out of this prison. Can you do me a favor by at least getting up? Peter had learned the lesson that even when the storms of life are raging on the outside, he could be at peace on the inside. And I tell you, learning to trust God fully and completely is a prerequisite for experiencing inner peace and shalom. I'll close with this story. Horatio Spafford was a wealthy Chicago businessman. In the year 1873, he placed his wife Anna and their four young daughters on a ship sailing to Europe. Uh, he had to stay behind in the United States to attend to some last-minute work. And the plan was for him to join his family in Europe in a few days' time. And on that voyage, a tragic collision happened, and this ship rammed into another vessel. And when Horatio Spafford heard about this accident, obviously he was anxious, not knowing what happened to his own beloved family. And finally, he received a telegram from his wife. And she said, saved alone. 
She's the only one who managed to escape. All four of their daughters had drowned in the sea. In all, 200 people died from that tragedy. And Spafford made immediate arrangements to take the next ship to join his grieving wife. And as he was sailing, the captain of the ship announced that they were now passing through that very place where this terrible collision took place. And for Spafford, this was like walking through the valley of the shadow of death. This was the place of tragedy and sorrow. And as he sat down in his cabin on the high seas, near the very place where his children went deep into the bottom of the sea. Spafford wrote a hymn that has brought comfort to God's people over the ages. It's the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Here are the opening words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, and notice that word sea billows, put it in the context of what he had just gone through. It refers to the immense sorrow that he experienced in losing his daughters. He's speaking here of his personal tragedy. And let's not minimize grief. It is normal to grieve and feel the pain of loss. We don't ever hush that. God doesn't expect us to be stoic sufferers or go through pain without flinching. A lament and weeping and mourning are not anti-faith. And look at the next set of verses that just puts things into perspective. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my Lord, thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. That is the peace we're talking about today. Shalom, peace that surpasses all understanding. The same quality of peace that Jesus had is ours. And when you can experience this peace in the midst of your personal tragedy, it is a miracle. You cannot explain it in human words. This is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit imparting the peace of Jesus into your soul. And we don't receive peace because our problems have been taken care of or they've been solved. The storm may be still raging, but peace flows from an inner sense of quietness and trust in God's character. That shalom, whatever your circumstances may be, you can rest in the assurance that God's got you in the palm of His hands.